the number one cause of death for people living with diabetes is heart disease. The amount of deaths from autoimmune disease in general is actually higher than heart disease, cancer, diabetes. But stress itself is what we need to learn, to balance, to manage. Otherwise, we will die from the consequences of stress. There are other methods for healing or in healthcare than just what we've been taught or programmed. What if we restored mitochondrial function? They don't care at all what happens to your quality of life. So we're talking about the diet style that's most favorably designed to slow the aging process, prevent disease, prevent cancer and dementia and also reverse disease. How do we create spaciousness for ourselves? Every step you take, you go, you evolve. You go, you evolve, you expand your consciousness. You expand your consciousness, you develop more internal power, you become more available, you become more ready. Life then, God gives you more. If you are seeking greater health, wealth, and happiness, then you're in the right place. Welcome to the number one holistic health podcast in the world. Now, here's your host, best-selling author, inspirational speaker, and award-winning documentary filmmaker and health researcher, Nathan Crane. Welcome to the podcast. I'm really excited about today's uh, episode. Today we have Dr. Jill Carnahan, who is a duly board certified in family medicine, as well as in integrative holistic medicine since 2005. She founded the Methodist Center for Integrative Medicine in Peoria and worked there as a medical director. Then in 2010, she moved to Boulder uh, and opened the Flatiron Functional Medicine Center, where she uh, is a widely sought after medical practice. She has a widely sought after medical practice with a broad range of clinical services, including nutritional consultations, chiropractic therapy, naturopathic medicine, acupuncture, and massage therapy. That's my kind of clinic. I'll tell you what, all of those things in one. Uh, I kind of have to source those things separately from different practitioners today. Um, so it's cool to have places that do it all in one place. Uh, Dr. Jill is a survivor of both breast cancer and Crohn's disease. And she's very passionate about teaching patients how to live well and thrive uh, when they're dealing with chronic illness. Her newest book is called Unexpected. It is a fantastic read. I highly recommend it. Um, it's like, it's... Dr. Jill, I love how you've written this where it's very storytelling. You're like telling stories the whole time and it keeps you super engaged. It's like the story of your life, childhood challenges you've been through, things that you've overcome, as well as like really practical steps people can take. You talk about different types of diets and then, you know, different things to think through and whether it's mental, emotional health or lifestyle changes, but it's not like a super analytical left brain step-by-step book, which, um, you know, I, I read those too, but I get way more engaged in story. And I think most people do, right? Human beings, we love stories. We get um, emotionally drawn into to a story. We can relate to a story, uh, especially when it's a real story like yours, dealing with cancer and Crohn's disease and, and chronic ailments, you know, that you were struggling through as a medical doctor and, you know, realizing that the conventional medical approach maybe wasn't going to have the best solutions for you long-term. And so you started seeking solutions elsewhere. So I want to, I'd love to get into that with you, but, but welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Uh, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. I'm super excited for our conversation today. 
Yeah, me too. So I want to start with your um, cancer diagnosis, if you don't mind, and just talk a little bit about what that was like for you. What what were you going through and what was that time in your life? Um, you know, where were you at in your life? I believe you were already a practicing physician. Is that right? I was in medical school. Oh, you're in medical school. That's right. And um, yeah, can you can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So the little backstory is I grew up on a farm in Illinois. I was one of five kids. I had a really healthy upbringing and you would think it was like the perfect place to grow up. Lots of acres to roam and we rode four wheelers and played on the farm and snowmobiles. And and we actually had about a half acre garden. My mother was a retired nurse, had to retire to raise five children. (laughs) And so um, it was really a beautiful childhood. I had a great family, great environment. But unbeknownst to me, I think that the background there was that there was Uh, toxic chemicals on the farm back in the 70s and 80s it was very common to use pesticides and herbicides it still is actually unfortunately my family's changed their farming practices actually partially because of my cancer diagnosis but all this i went you know went through high school graduated valedictorian went to medical school but my heart was always that of a naturopath like i i knew that there was ways to heal the body in more natural ways so it's funny because i almost um didn't go to medical school i applied to chiropractic and acupuncture and all those kind of alternative therapies because i knew my heart was how do we um optimize the body to thrive in the midst of illness and that was my mindset but what happened was i started applying to medical schools and in chicago which wasn't too far away from my hometown of Illinois, there was about seven medical schools. And all of a sudden, I started getting acceptance letters. And I thought, okay, maybe I should consider this. And it was an interesting thing. It was a very deliberate decision, because I knew that allopathic model um, actually wasn't exactly aligned with my belief, not that there wasn't good there. And I always say, like, my job, my soul's role in the world is to bridge the gap, because we have allopathic medicine, when we get a, you know, car accident, or a trauma or heart attack, you want to be in the best medical center available to save your life. But if you have chronic illness, cancer, autoimmunity, obesity, diabetes, I could name a hundred others, we don't have a drug that reverses those conditions. And that's this idea, right? And I'm framing this because all of a sudden I'm in medical school, an allopathic, regular conventional school, really a brutal training system. It's still very archaic, very masculine, very driven, very um, kind of abusive, if I'm honest, as far as how the work hour regulations came into play. But before that, I was doing 36 hour shifts at a time, I would have maybe three or four days off a month. That's it. And it was really quite uh, stressful. I always say it's interesting because it was almost like they trained you to not not use the restroom, not eat, not sleep. Like, how could you like deny your body, your needs to the best, to the most ability so that you could do the medicine? But in a way, that's the worst kind of way to create a compassionate physician, right? So all this in the midst of my third and hardest year of medical school, I'm in my surgery rotation and we're talking about breast disease and breast cancer. So I'm like, oh, let me check my breast and make sure there's no lumps. I'm 24 years old, right before my 25th birthday. And I find a lump. And I'm literally like, oh, I don't have time for this. I initially totally ignored it. And it was like a thickening in my left breast right under my armpit. But of course, at the insistence of my ex-husband and the people around me, they said, you need to get this checked out. So it was like two short weeks later, I had a mammogram, an ultrasound, and a biopsy. And I'll never forget, Nathan, you know, there's times when like your life changes forever. And you remember like the color of the wallpaper, the the music that was playing, whenever that song plays again, you like takes you right back to there. You remember every single detail. Yeah. And yep. this was one of those moments in my life where I literally, I can remember the color of the walls, the green chair I was sitting in. I get a call from the surgeon and she said, Jill, um, I don't really know how to tell you this, but you have aggressive breast cancer. 
I had just literally days, probably five or seven days from my 25th birthday. I had just turned 25. And at that time at Loyola, where I went to medical school, I was the youngest person they had ever diagnosed with breast cancer. Now, sadly, since then, that's 20 plus years uh, later, there's been a lot of young women in their teens and in their 20s diagnosed. So it's sadly becoming more common. But at that time in 2001, it was an anomaly. It was an absolute shock and it completely changed my life, that one phone call. So then what do I do, right? I believe that holistic medicine is powerful. I believe I can heal. That never changed. But here I am facing this life-threatening diagnosis. And to put it in perspective, I always say everybody listening has had someone they know with breast cancer. I can't imagine it hasn't touched um, every single listener, either aunt or grandmother or mother or uh, someone you know, maybe it's a friend. And most of those women are diagnosed. The average age is around 55. But um, in young women, it's a whole different ballgame. First of all, the statistics of getting that diagnosis are one in a million. And then second, the survival rate is very, very poor. And to put that in a perspective, it's I was in a group of young women under the age of 40 in Chicago, a support group for breast cancer. I'm the only one still living. So it was it was definitely a, a major diagnosis. So then what do I do? I ended up doing conventional chemotherapy with some of the most aggressive drugs known to mankind. Um, just like the one of the heart toxic drugs, they basically calculated the dose that they could give me, the maximum dose before my heart would stop beating. And they gave me that dose. Wow. So I have a lifetime dose of that drug. I can never have any more. Another drug called cytoxin is known to induce leaky gut. And that's a whole nother part of my story that I didn't realize in the time, but I took these three drugs. I lost all my hair this morning. You saw a picture of me bald <laughs> on the marquee. Um, and, and I, I, I've learned a new term for bald. It's kind of more fun to say it's glaborious. So I would be like, I'm it's hairless is all it means. And I'd be like, I'm glaborious, <laughs> but I was bald. I was sick. I was malnourished. I was, yeah, that's here's, it. For, every, for everyone watching, I'll, here's a, uh, you just told me about a new film documentary about your life, Dr. Patient. Um, and this is you on the right, bald, yeah. obviously um, younger. Yeah. Uh, and then here's you on the left now. Um, this is at, at, so this is at 25, 26 on the right. Yeah, that's 25 years old. Wow. Yeah, it's really, it's even for me, like there's a heart piece when you put that up. It's like, ah, oh, my breath almost stops because I remember that girl. And the interesting thing is, I mean, life just, Life can take us in two different directions. It can either like jade us and make us sarcastic and contemptuous and, and hateful or, or a bitter, or it can change our life in the most beautiful, beautiful way. Hmm. And that picture you just showed is a perfect encapsulation of like this horror and trauma and difficulty and, and really facing my own mortality that I had to do at the age of 25. And you know what happened, Nathan, was it became the most beautiful catalyst I could have ever I wouldn't have never wished it and I would never wish it on anyone else. But now it is the foundation of why I do what I do with so much passion and purpose. And it's the it was the catalyst because really even the book Unexpected, the whole point of the book is to give people tools to take tragedy and suffering and difficulty and reframe them in a way where they can be the best thing that ever happened, even though they're painful. And even though we wouldn't want to go through them again, 
And that's what happened for me. And all of a sudden I started to have a story and it took me about 10 or 12 years before I was brave enough to talk about my story. Mm. I think sometimes to process what you go through emotionally, you have to be a little bit distance away from the story to tell it. Well, again, as a filmmaker, you know how this goes, you can do, you, but you can't, if you're in the midst of the story and you don't really understand it, it's not a good time to tell the story, right? But yeah. if you're past it and you look back and you're like, wow, there was such power. And what it did is it gave me this story as like the film doctor patient all of a sudden I became the patient and I understood to a whole different level greater than any textbook education what it was like to face um, the good and the bad in medicine and the difficulties and the uncertainties and even just the the grayness of the answers I was shocked at how gray the answers were as far as what should my treatment be there was no black and white it was a lot of shades of gray and it was really difficult even as a medical student who had the best medical libraries at my disposal to decide what do I do? What treatment do I do? Yeah, it's, uh, it's such a struggle that so many cancer patients go through. You know, I talk to, uh, cancer patients all the time. And one of the biggest struggles is, well, what do I do? There's so much information out there. There's so many options. My oncologist is telling me one thing, my, uh, nature path telling me another thing, you know, this coaching program is telling me something different. It's like, I'm confused. I'm afraid. What do I do? And unfortunately what most people do is they go to their oncologist. The oncologist says chemotherapy, radiation, surgery, and the people don't, research that they don't look into it any further they don't really know the potential damage and side effects and the the real life expectancy on that um in that approach and they just do whatever they're told to do out of fear and yeah. and i say unfortunately because um it's it's very it's a very shocking and very sad thing to see people go through right which is this very scary diagnosis. Hey, you've been diagnosed with stage four, you know, breast cancers, metastasized to the lungs or to the colon or wherever it might is metastasized. You have three months left to live. If you don't do this treatment now, you're dead. And the person goes, oh my God, you know, of course I have to do it, right? They don't, even if like you in the back of your mind, you're like, I know there's natural ways. I know there's a holistic approach I could do. I know there's something, it was the same thing you know, when my grandfather was, was diagnosed with cancer, with leukemia, and I went to go visit him, I had already been studying natural health for seven or eight years. I thought I knew a lot by that point, you know? I was like, oh, yeah, I know, I know what I'm talking about. Yeah. You know, I, 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 uh, I can help anybody. And, but I'd never dealt with cancer at all. And, uh, and I had this little bit of, you know, in, in ego about it. And I went to sit with my grandpa, and it was like, what do I tell him? What, it's like, I know there's things he could be doing, but I don't know what they are. I know that, you know, I could see the chemotherapy and the radiation killing him, literally killing him, destroying his immune system, making his hair fall out, becoming weaker and weaker and weaker. And it wasn't the cancer that was doing that. It was the treatment that he was following. And he didn't know anything else than that. And he had, you know, plenty of money to, to get yeah. the best treatment available. And it was like, I knew there's things he could be doing, but I didn't know, I, I wasn't confident in what it what he could do and what I could tell him. And that was, then he passed away in 2013. And that's what sent me on this deep mission to discover and learn everything I possibly could about cancer. What causes it? You know, why do we have cancer form in the body? What can we do about it? How can we prevent it? How can we heal it so that I can help, you know, not only myself and my family, but help others around the world struggling with the same 
challenge. And it's like, well, yeah, once you understand what cancer is and what causes it and what we can do about it uh, to not only prevent it, but help our bodies fight against it naturally, that fear, like even if I had a cancer diagnosis today, that fear is like, oh, yeah, there's nothing to be afraid of, you know, um, at that point, because it's like, oh, I know there's so many things I can do even to the next level. And I think there's a deeper conversation of, you know, this fear of death that we have as human beings that people are so uh, afraid to talk about and to discuss and to explore as well. Because when you have faced death's door, right, like, like you have, anybody who's been facing, who has, like I have, has faced death's door and, and, and you have to grip with the fact that, you know, you could die right now or tomorrow and you accept that and you, and you start to free yourself from that fear, you start to live life differently. Am I right? Like you start to think differently about life and you start to, at least for me, appreciate life so much more, appreciate every moment and try to live my life to the absolute fullest. Um, and you start to think about things a little bit different way. And I think it, it can be a healthier way as well. And so again, I'm not putting down conventional medicine either. I mean, it certainly can save lives and um, and it has saved lives. And, and there are some treatments that, um, you know, chemotherapy can be effective against, you know, yeah. testicular cancer has about a 50% success rate, but most cancers have about a 97 and a half percent failure rate with chemotherapy, increasing lifespan beyond five years. And that was the largest meta analysis that was ever done on chemotherapy on 22 adult malignancies saying that it only has a two and a half percent improval of survival rate to five years, two and a half percent approval. And yet it's still the number one, uh, you know, approach uh, the conventional medicine uses, even though we know it's highly ineffective. And as you said, can cause leaky gut and damage the immune system, can mm -hmm. cause inflammation and actually is carcinogenic, meaning it also causes cancer. So even if that particular cancer goes away, we see this again and again where, you know, uh, a secondary cancer can come back with a vengeance if you don't get to the root cause of what caused that cancer in the first place. Yeah, gosh, you have said so many important things. Um, and it's funny because this framed how I talk to patients that come to me who had that cancer diagnosis. The number one thing is don't act in fear. That's easy said and hard to do. But when you're pressured, and I always say, if you need two weeks or even a, a month or so to make a decision, generally speaking, that time that you need to make a decision is not going to change the outcome. And I always encourage people, don't feel the pressure. They're putting on the pressure to decide tomorrow because you're not going to do it from a place that's good from your soul, from your heart of what's right. Second thing is you take the information you're given, make the best decision you can and decide on that day. And I did this 21 years ago, never, ever look back and say, what if, because then you're going to live a life of regret, right? And you must take, even for me, I did toxic three drug chemotherapy. The cancer was easy. I've overcome that. That's gone. Since, since that time, 20 years, I've been recovering my body and my immune system from the chemotherapy, but never once, not even one time have I said, what if I wouldn't have done that? Or should I? So I never, I don't have regret. Yeah. I chose at that moment to move forward with the best information I could and said, you know what, I might think differently later on and get more information. But for today, I'm going to make the decision. And it's helped me so much because I don't live in regret. I don't live in the past. I know I did that. It saved my life. And there's other things. And then like you said, what I did, I knew enough at that time. I had prayer meditation. I had nutritional supplementation. I had massive important changes in diet. So I did all the things around it. And who knows? That's what allowed me to survive the cancer. I don't even know. But it's interesting. Um, to have that perspective looking back. Yeah, I think that's that's really um, insightful what you just shared. And 
you know, not having regrets, not having, you know, going back to what you said earlier about like, it took you years to actually come to grips with that experience of yours, that part of your life to be able to share it with others. I mean, I had the same thing where in, in a different way where I, you know, grew up addicted to drugs and alcohol and I was homeless at 15 and I was in and out of jail and I was totally lost in life and angry and, and, you know, completely in a lot of, you know, um, a lot of trouble and, and just this, this really, um, distraught, lost, angry, uh, addicted, you know, teenager and almost dead at 18 years old. And when I, and when I was 18, uh, that's when I, you know, changed my life, completely transformed and started, diving into learning everything I could about health and working out and, and meditation and cleaning my body. And I stopped all, even, even like Advil, Tylenol, Ibuprofen. It was like, when I go hardcore for something, it's like, I go all in. I'm like, I'm like, I'm like no more drugs. Okay. Not even Ibuprofen. I won't even touch that stuff, you know, like hundred percent. And that was, you know, when I was 18 and, and I still struggled off and on for a few years after that to finally get off alcohol, finally get off cigarettes, finally get off all drugs. Like, I would go on periods, you know, of abstinence and then relapse, abstinence and relapse, but I got better and better and better as I healed emotionally, right? As I, as I went into my childhood and, and healed my adverse events and the traumatic experiences that I had and forgave myself and forgave others that I blamed and practiced meditation and Qigong and did hypnotherapy and all kinds of mental, emotional healing practices, which I still do to this day. But I think had I not gone through those, you know, deep reflective and meditative and healing practices, you know, during those early years, it would, I wouldn't have been able to overcome those addictions completely. And, you know, I'm talking about addictions to drugs and alcohol and sugar, you know, processed mm -hmm. food, fast food, things like that. But people are dealing with addictions of all kinds today that are leading to cancer, right? Fast food, processed food, high sugar, high salt, high oil foods, um, alcohol, cigarettes, that, you know, these, these lifestyle choices and habits that are completely addictive that are leading to alcohol. Well, why do we get addicted to it? Yeah, the, the, the physiological side and the biological side makes sense why we get addicted, but why can't we stop eating those things or smoking those things or drinking those things? It's because of a deeper underlying root cause that is uh, preventing us from fully stopping uh, living our lives that way, right? And it's almost always something in our childhood, whether it's subconscious programming or it's traumatic experiences um, or childhood adverse events. And so for you, what did you, you know, so, so, Hey, I just want to take a quick second and thank you for listening to this episode. I hope you're enjoying it so far as a special thank you for tuning into this episode. I want to give you my number one Amazon best-selling book, absolutely free. You can go download it right now at becoming cancer free. Com. If you want to learn evidence-based strategies for helping your body become a cancer-fighting machine for not only cancer reversal but cancer prevention, go grab a copy of the book. Again, I'm just giving it to you for free. You can go download it at becomingcancerfree.com. All right, let's get back to the show. Personally, I've had to, to heal many of those things over the years, and I know that they help contribute to me being able to completely you know, stop all those addictions. For you, did you have anything like that in your life? 
100%. Um, and I share that in the book because it's funny, when I first started thinking about writing the book, I was thinking about environmental toxicity and this effect of environmental toxins on our body leading to cancer and autoimmunity. But I wanted to go deeper. And we talk about that in the book of like the childhood trauma, the toxic relationships, the toxic emotions, like all these things on a whole different level and toxicity maybe contribute even more than the environmental chemicals we get exposed to. And my experience was interesting because I went probably seven, eight years ago to a mastermind, a great group of health entrepreneurs, and it was a great group. And I remember sitting there and the speaker happened to be really um, advocating helping addicts. And he was talking about drugs and alcohol. And he was talking about, you know, addictions. And I kind of started to tune out because for me, drugs and alcohol hadn't been my addictions. So my, what my thought was then was, oh, I'm not an addict, right? But then he stopped and he said, all of you in this room are addicts. And he said, you're addicted to work. You're addicted to success, to achievement. And what you just said, the frame of an addiction, you can think of it, whether you overeat or overspend or do drugs or alcohol, or you work too much, or all those things are just ways that we numb out the difficult emotions and the trauma that we don't want to feel. Yeah, I mean, sex, sex, gambling, um, you know, also an addiction I discovered years ago that people don't realize they have that I think is valuable to realize if you have it is this addiction to drama. It's yes. like- Right. Like constantly having to get into fights or having to, you know, experience drama or create drama. If there's no drama in your life, people go, oh, my God, my life is such a mess. And, you know, I got all this drama and, and it's like they complain about it. But then if you look at the behavior, the behavior actually is continuously creating the drama in their life. And so that's an addiction. Like we get a neurological hit a high from that. So, you know, there's a lot of healthier ways to do it. Like high intensity exercise or sauna or jump into an ice bath, get some neuroadrenaline, norepinephrine release. It's the same neurochemicals, but way healthier for you than getting into stressful, you know, fights, verbal yeah. fights, you know, dramatic situations. But just like, you know, you're saying, I just wanted to add that there's so many ways that addiction shows up in a person's life and becoming aware of that is the first step to overcoming those addictions. Yeah. And what I was describing is for me in that moment in the room, I was like, oh, wait, he's talking about me. And it was a massive aha, because again, I had been like, oh, well, I'm not that type of person, right? Which is judgmental and wrong and not true at all. And all of a sudden it came back to me and I was like, oh, he's right. And I realized what happens, especially in certain types of addictions, like maybe drama or success or achievement or work or your society actually endorses that and, and yeah. causes it to be, because it's like a acceptable way to be an addict, but it doesn't mean it's right. So I had <laughs> Look, because part of it, again, go, go, go. I wouldn't rest. I wouldn't sit. I would just be always, always doing, going, trying. And it's just like any addiction, you get your high of achievement or some success, and then you just have to do another, you know, you're on that treadmill all, all the time. Yeah. So I'm on that treadmill right now, unfortunately. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I, I continue to too. I mean, I like a documentary last year, book last year. I mean, there's lots of, and I love that, but also there's a time and place to be resting. And what I found is when I was still, when I had nothing on my schedule, which was very rare, I would actually have a little bit of anxiety and mm. it was as those feelings and those emotions of like, who am I without my success? And, and what does this bring up? Is it sadness or anger? And there's something I 
write about in the book called type C personality. And this is something that is actually connected to cancer. And we have the type A's that are go, go, go. And we have the type C's that are very compliant and complacent, and they don't express a lot of anger. And it was interesting because I remember the first time with my therapist after my divorce, and I was talking, I said, well, I don't get angry. She laughed at me, of course, right? Because of course you get angry. Of course, everyone has angry, but I was so dissociated from that, the emotion of sadness and anger at that time that I was literally telling her, I don't feel anger. And I was so suppressed and, and stuck down. Well, now I can actually feel my body. I've done the work around the somatic therapies and I can tell when I'm having those emotions of, and I can sit with them too, which means, you know, that's that's part of dealing with addiction is how do you deal with these difficult fears, emotions, or traumas? Um, maybe it's anger, maybe it's sadness, or maybe it's just something really difficult that happened to you that you kind of do your addiction so that you don't have to feel. And and healing is actually being with that, sitting with that, being kind to yourself in the process and having love and compassion for that younger self that maybe went through something difficult. And that was a huge part of my healing. Um, in fact, as I wrote about autoimmunity and I de dealt with Crohn's right after the cancer, um, metaphorically, autoimmunity is attack of self, right? And part of the healing, and Gabor Mate goes through this in some of his uh, writings, is you have to really find a way to love all the parts of yourself and not dissociate from those parts and accept all those parts. And that's part of the healing of autoimmune disease. Yeah, that's huge. Um, and that's one of the problems I think we have in society today is like this tendency to um, deflect or neglect what we're feeling uh, because we think it's either weak or we think it is, um, you know, we just don't have time for that. It doesn't matter. It's not important. You know, there's a million judgmental reasons why someone might not want to sit with those emotions. But that's the only way uh, that I've found that we can actually heal and transcend, um, you know, those emotional experiences, whether it's it's fear, it's anger, it's resentment, it's jealousy. Is to is to recognize and go. Oh, okay. I'm I'm feeling angry right now. Let me take a few breaths. Stand back and go. Okay. Why am I feeling angry? You know, where is this coming from? And just just be with it. Like like accept it and and then question it and don't try to judge it right away and don't try to push it away right away. It's like okay. I'm feeling angry. All right. Mm -hmm. I accept it. Like that's the first step I found. Like if you can yeah. just accept that you're feeling what you're feeling right now and do nothing else, like it will, exactly. it will skyrocket you to a level of emotional intelligence that you, that I had no idea was possible because as a kid, I, I didn't know how to deal with emotions. I bottled them up inside yeah. and then I'd be having a conversation with my parents. They'd just be asking me some regular questions. I just burst out crying and I didn't know why. And I remember sitting there one day in my my parents were talking to me about something and it, it was a slightly serious conversation, but it wasn't anything that was like, I wasn't like in trouble or I wasn't, you know, it, it wasn't anything that I should have been necessarily afraid of or sad about. It's just a conversation having with a whatever 12 year old kid. And all of a sudden I just burst out crying and I didn't know why. And then I felt ashamed and my parents were like, why are you crying? And then like, I felt ashamed to be crying. And I didn't know why I was crying. And I just, I had no idea. It was like all this bottled emotion just stuck inside. It's got to come out eventually, you know, it just got to come out somehow. And it either and comes out. if you don't out deal with it, it'll come out in illness. Like that's, that was my story. Like it, it will literally manifest in illness. And for me, I always lived from the neck up. So I would always analyze and think about it. And that's not a great place when you need to feel. I had to learn to like go into the body because when you have anger, when you have sadness, you learn your patterns. For me, you might have like a tightness in the chest for anger or an upset stomach for sadness or in, for each person is different. 
different, but you kind of start to identify these somatic signs, like your body will tell you, your body is so intelligent. And if you just listen, but often, at least for me, and it sounds like for you too, when we suppress, we uh, get so dissociated from our actual physical body and sensations that we aren't even paying attention. We aren't even aware of those sensations, but those are clues. And nowadays, if I get angry, I'm like, ooh, oh, wait, that's anger. Like, it's almost like this funny recognition. And then I can express it in whatever way that's appropriate. But yeah. it's really relearning to be in touch with your physical body and listen to those messages that it gives us every day. Well, we know, you know, um, we know emotions and, and let's say em emotional disconnection, um, living in a, in a constant negative emotional state, um, we know that that emotional energy can lead to cancer and other chronic diseases. And in fact, a lot of the top medical literature says up to 90% of all chronic diseases actually due to stress or related to stress. And people say, oh yeah, stress. Yeah, whatever. It's just stress. You know, it's like everyone has stress. Well, yeah, we all have stress. The question is how do we deal with that stress and what do we do about it and how do we mitigate it and how we're never going to eliminate stress from our lives. You know, I was talking to someone the other day, it's like driving on the, the freeway here in Jacksonville is really stressful. And, and they're like, yeah, I just want to go live out in the country. I'm like, I want to live in the country too, actually. Like that seems very, you know, uh -huh. uh, something I'd love to do outside the city. But if you are just running away from the city to go live in the country because you're blaming all of your stress from driving through the city um, and you don't have any way of dealing with that, right? You don't have any way of, of um, uh, eliminating that stress from your body and from your emotions. You're going to go out into the country and something else is going to stress you out. It's going to be a hot day and the AC is going to break. You're going to be without AC for like a week or two weeks. And how are you going to deal with that stress? You know, your water pump's going to go out. Something's going to happen. And you're, there are always things in life, no matter where you are, in the most beautiful place in the world, you could be in Cancun, Mexico, and you are going to have stressful situations uh, come into your life. And so you will never avoid all stress. Like people, please get that clear, right? Like you can't run away from stress. It's always going to be there. You can you can reduce things that lead to stress, but you will never eliminate it. What we have to learn how to do, and I'd love to hear your some of the solutions that you have for, for the stress in your life. It, what we have to learn how to do is to recognize when we're feeling stressful and then have some immediate tools that we can implement to eliminate that stress from our bodies, right? And there are some very powerful things that we can do to transform that stress. And, and all it takes is the awareness of it and then some practice. And we can go from a sympathetic state, which we know leads to cancer and other chronic diseases. If you're in a continuous sympathetic nervous system state, fight or flight, you know, adrenal response state, you know, day in and day out, hour after hour after hour, you're uh, downregulating your immune system and you're uh, contributing to chronic inflammation of the body and you're allowing, you know, things like cancer and heart disease to take over. Um, or you're in a parasympathetic state where you are upregulating your immune system. You're in a more calm and relaxed healing state, and you are allowing your body to regenerate and rejuvenate continuously. And so I've got great practices I can share, but I'd love to hear, you know, some of your best, you know, stress reducing practices. 
Yeah, love that discussion because this is this is where the rubber hits the road, and this is maybe the most important tools for your own health and wellness, and probably far more important than a vitamin D or a supplement you're taking, even though those can be really helpful too. Um, it's interesting because the title in book is resilience, finding resilience through functional medicine, which is kind of this core way of looking at the world that there is root causes and that we can reverse trajectories in health and healing. But it's science and faith through science and faith. And that could be also thought of as like right brain, left brain, masculine, feminine, science, faith is like these two sides of any issue. And I love to frame that because I definitely have a belief in God and have a strong spiritual practice, but not everybody listening will. And that's okay, because I believe faith is also the way we deal with the inevitable uncertainty that life throws us, which is like what you were just describing with stress. Stress is from Han Cellier research decades ago, novelty unpredictability, threat to ego, sense of control. And we've just had that with pandemic, with moves, with all kinds of craziness, right? Novelty, it's all new. We haven't experienced this before. Unpredictability, totally unpredictable. Threat to ego or threat to health, anything which could be cancer, could be Crohn's, could be any health issue or threat to our own identity and sense of control. And so I'd like to frame faith as a bigger concept of, again, for me, it is religious. I believe in God, but for many people, it isn't. And that's okay. It's how do we deal with uncertainty? And if we have this preference, like I want to get to this certain spot in an hour and I'm stuck in traffic and I can't control that, that stresses us out because we have this preference, this idea of what should happen and it's not happening like we want it to. So it stresses us out. But guess what? We have a choice. We have a choice that, okay, what if we just let things happen and we allow and we surrender to the flow of life, which will inevitably bring uncertainty and change and lack of control and all those things. If we're like grabbing on and we have this idea of how life has to be and how it should be and exactly what time of every moment of the day is supposed to be like, we're really, really planned, which I am very organized and, and planned out. But if I hold too tightly to that, And I don't allow for the uncertainty and the unexpected. That's what's stressful, right? But I have a choice on that. So I can let go and surrender. And I can also let go of preferences, which means, you know, I want it to look this way. I want it to be this way. You can do that and still achieve and have a goal and have a plan. But if you like, even for the book, I had this plan in 2015, I wrote in my journal, I'm going to publish and write a book next year. That's 2016. Here it is, 2023, my book is published and out after whatever, seven years. But it's interesting because we had, I had that preference, but then I allowed the divine and the world and the life to happen as it did. And it's a much better timing and much better book than it ever would have been in that time. But that was me surrendering to this inevitable uncertainty and having faith that it would work out. And so that's mm. why I bring this in because that takes away the stress. When I wake up in the day and I'm like, I have X, Y, Z on my agenda and I hope it goes that way. But I'm also like, what else could happen? Like I have that childlike wonder of like, what if something unexpected happens? And then when something does happen unexpected, even if it's like I, I have a flat tire or I'm stuck in traffic, I'm always thinking about, okay, this happened. I can't change it, right? What if there's something really cool here for me if I watch and look? So you can change that perspective And instead of having this frustration and anger because things aren't going your way, you shift that to be like, what if I'm supposed to talk to someone that's going to change my attire for me right now? Or, you know, there's these things that randomly happen. And so often, if we have that perspective, the random events that we didn't expect are some of the most beautiful, magical things in our days. And we get this unexpected meeting with a neighbor or whatever. Um, And so for me, that's part of the stress. And then there's the practical things toxicity is part of our world. And so whatever we do to bring down emotional, relational, and mental toxicity every single day is really important. And we can go in January and go to the gym and do a 21-day detox, but that's no longer good enough. So part of the stress is stress detox. And I'm such a 
fan of incorporating daily habits that work for you. For me, it's an Epsom salt bath at night before bed. It's my PEMF mat, usually sometime during the day. It's um, having plenty of hydration and water. It's going on a walk every single day if possible. It's these, and they're very simple. It's clean air, it's clean water, it's clean food, but you can figure out for you what works. And for me, those are some of the things that de-stress me because I know I have these things that are built into my schedule, my program. Um, that really reduce my stress. Prayer and meditation. Often, if I have the time in the morning, which is probably four or five days out of the seven, I'll make sure I have the 30 minutes of either journaling, meditation, prayer. And my day always goes better when I start that way. And I could talk about 101 different things, but you have to find out for you what's going to be doable, what's going to be sustainable, what's going to be a habit that makes a difference for you, and what really for your physiology. Some people would be like, Epsom salt baths don't work for me. For me, that's a game changer. Hey, I just want to pause a second and ask you, are you enjoying this episode so far? Are you getting good value from this content? If so, then I know you're going to absolutely love Healing Life. At healinglife.net, you get exclusive and premier access to hundreds of the top world's doctors, experts, cancer conquerors, and survivors, exclusive interviews that I have done with all these experts and doctors uh, that are not available for free online. They're only available at healinglife.net. So not only do you get access to all of those, but you actually get to speak with these doctors and experts and ask them any question you want about health and healing. And this is available exclusively to Healing Life members. You can try it out for free. Go to healinglife.net and you can start your free trial there. And uh, whether you're interested in learning more about detox or cancer, diet and nutrition and nutritional science about diabetes, about heart disease, autoimmune disease, anti-aging, longevity. All of these topics are covered in depth and more are continuing to be added at Healing Life. And again, you get to talk to these doctors yourself. So I invite you to set up a free trial at healinglife.net. And I hope to see you over there. Now, let's get back to the show. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm reminded of a couple things. Uh, one is the acronym HALT, right? So like, if you're like, why am I so stressed out? You know, think about the, the acronym HALT. Are you hungry? Are you feeling angry? Are you feeling lonely? Are you feeling tired, right? Mm -hmm. Or you're feeling all four of those and then life's going to really suck in that moment, you know? Right. The biggest, you know, sometimes it's just like, man, I just need some nutrition. Like, mm -hmm. I need to get, like this morning I worked out and it was like by the end of the workout, all of a sudden I just like, I was starting to bonk. Yeah. If someone came and talked to me in that moment, I would have been like um, a little bit standoffish because like my brain energy was just, you know, that totally left my body. And it was like, I needed some carbohydrates. Uh, I needed some protein, you know, so it's like, okay, quick protein drink, boom, you know, with some orange juice. Like I needed something, you know, eat a banana and have some coconut water, whatever, get something into your system. You know, I, obviously healthy choice is always the best choice. Um, but get something into your system to, to just help with the hunger part. If it's, if it's hungry, that's an easy thing you can fix. But if it's angry and lonely, those are things that we need to spend more time on, right? Those are things we need to focus quite a bit more on. And then if it's tired, well, obviously, we got to do all the things we can do to improve our sleep. Um, but there's two other. So I wanted to share two things that came up as well. Um, there's two concepts I, I learned early on that I think... Um, I think you'll resonate with uh, deeply and have helped me so much in my life when you talk about faith. 
the two concepts are um, the first one is the the universe is always conspiring for you for yeah. your benefit or you can replace the universe with God God is always conspiring to to help you for you for your benefit right always trying to work in always trying to create things to help work in your favor not against you a lot of people have the belief that everything's against me the world's exactly. against me the universe is against me god's against me right god doesn't listen to me etc it's like if you if you actually hone into this belief which i did really early on and i don't i may have learned it from wayne dyer you know 17 years ago i don't remember the first time i heard it but i've heard it again and again and again and it takes repetition and it takes paying attention right but the universe is always trying to support you god is always trying to support you and the second concept is everything happens for a reason and I know people have probably heard this a million times, but like, do you really believe it? Because if you really, if you have faith in that, and then you see it show up again and again and again and again, again just like you were talking about, um, then you start to believe it. And then eventually you know it to be true. You know, for me early on, it was just like, it was just the faith of like, well, yeah, it, it sounds good. It sounds like a great concept. I hope it's true, right, right. <laughs> right? It was just like faith. Like faith is kind of like, I think, well, faith is beyond hope, right? Like faith is more like belief. Yeah. Um, but for me early on, those concepts were like hope. They were like, yeah, they sound great. And I really right. hope that they're true. And then things would happen and I would struggle and things wouldn't work out. And then all of a sudden, the very last minute, I stayed focused and then things would work out. I could pay my rent, which like from some magical thing. I had no money to pay rent. And then all of a sudden some magical thing came and I paid rent on the very last day. Yeah. Like I had, I had like a hundred of those experiences in like just a couple of short years that made me absolutely believe these statements and know them to be true. And now today it's deeper than faith. It's a knowing, yes. right? It's a Nathan, knowing. I actually love that you said that because that's true. If people are listening, you're like, oh, this sucks. I don't believe it. I don't, you don't have to start with belief. You just have to repeat it enough and show up enough that your subconscious starts to shift. And I'm like you now, there is nothing that could take away my faith that good is going to happen and that I'm going to be okay. That's part of resilience is like, you know, and I know no matter what life throws at us, we have the experience and the, and the belief that we're going to be okay. And that we'll have the answers and it might be difficult, but we're going to figure it out. And I didn't have that 20 years ago, but over time and time and time and repetition, which is what you're explaining, you start to really realize it's true. Yeah. And it's the experiences that you have. You have to start somewhere and just start believing it and telling it to yourself. And then the experiences that you have start to validate it. And then yeah. the more validation you have, you just know it to be true. Same thing. So with your book, I had the same thing with my documentary uh, on cancer. It was, it was supposed to be done in like a year or a year yeah. and a half. And uh, went through a whole bunch of crazy experiences. I had a, a, a metaphorical tornado, hurricane, yeah. avalanche, all hit me and my life and businesses all at the same time. And all of a sudden that film got put on uh -huh. the back burner for like three years. And then all of a sudden I got this intuitive hit. It was like, it's time to finish the film. Yes. And what was amazing was over that three and a half to four year period, I had I had become different. I had become someone different, right? Like every few years, like hopefully you're growing people tuning in. Hopefully we're growing, uh, all the time, mentally, emotionally, you know, we're getting better, uh, in all ways, spiritually, hopefully we're becoming better and growing and healing and becoming more, you know, evolved, uh, spiritually. And so 
when I went back and looked at the concept for the film, which we had already spent like hundred thousand plus dollars on producing and writing and scripting and editing, I went back to it and I go, I got to start this over from scratch. Yeah. And, uh, and I went to Sedona, uh, and sat down and in a weekend wrote a whole brand new script just out of complete inspiration and then yeah. reached out to the entire team on the project and said, um, thank you guys for helping get it this far. I need to take this. I need yeah. to finish this on my own. And I, and I literally edited the entire film myself and it was like, it, and it completely turned out totally different than the original vision. And I deep, I still believe to this day that it turned out significantly better than it would have had that not happened. And had I not gone through that avalanche and hurricane tornado and all that crap I went through in my life at the time, you know, it wouldn't have gone that way. And then the film came out and then it, you know, it won like over 20 awards and it's been seen by hundreds of thousands of people and people love the film. And right. So it was like, it was, I just knew, okay, it's time to start this. I need to do this. It's going to work out perfectly. And I just trusted and followed yeah. the process and finished it. And to your point, that's not always easy, but the more we practice always, it, yeah. the easier it gets. You're just, that's exactly what happened to the book. I thought I had it all buttoned up, everything. And then I went through a difficult divorce and some traumatic relationships. And all of a sudden, instead of environmental toxicity, this became about this bigger issue, which we're discussing. The book today is so much different than it would have been. And not only is the audience more ready, I mean, our world needs hope. Our world needs the message that you and I both bring. And even five years ago, I don't know if there would have been that readiness for the message. And then I wasn't ready. It's so like God had to transform my life and take me through some tornadoes and hurricanes. And <laughs> I so understand because I was like, I, I had no idea that there was like three more chapters being written, right? And now that I see it all done, I'm like, oh my goodness, this is such a better end product than it would have been when it, I thought it was right. So I think one of the points you and I are bringing is we have this timeline. We have what we think is best. We have what we think we should, what kind of relationships, what kind of life what kind of work what kind of timeline and we can grab onto those and hold really tightly but if we surrender and we say okay i still have this vision i still am going to work hard and do everything possible i'm still going to show up every day but i'm going to release my timeline to a greater divine universal purpose and what happens then is magic like literally magic happens and it's totally not usually what we expect and the stress comes from hanging on, right? From from making it or trying to force it when it shouldn't happen that way. Exactly. Exactly. I'm going to be late. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So what? You're going to be late. You know, like, like, yeah, we try not to be late. Try to be on time. We right. honor other people's times. Like, but you're a few minutes late. The world still goes on, you know, mm -hmm. but I can't do it. It's like, oh, I'm going to be late. And then you just get, you know, and it's, exactly. it's, that's the simple things every day that lead to stress, right? Just time, yeah. just time for people. But the big things like you're talking about, these big projects, oh my gosh, can, can stress yeah. you to a cancer diagnosis. Oh yeah. Yeah. Exactly. That's exactly back to the health thing. These are the things listeners, like these are the things, if you can take one thing from it again, I love supplements. I love nutrition. I do that every day in the clinic, but this stuff, this mindset and thinking and belief and, and the power of really changing your reality based on how you, what you believe about the world, this stuff is powerful. It's, it's quantum leaps beyond the physical reality. Yeah. We know today, I mean, we've known for thousands of years, our ancestors have the power of the mind and the power of belief to, to heal anything. But now our modern science is catching up and right. proving it to be true from a scientific, you know, understanding it at a, deeper scientific and biological and quantum level. Like 
how does our belief actually affect our physiology? How does our belief change our neurochemicals and how do the neurochemicals actually uh, change our immune system and what's our immune system doing to help heal the body? Like we now know that, that your thoughts literally can change the entire world within your body and can help determine whether you're going to, you know, live to 80 or 90 with no diseases or die at 55 from, you know, a cancer diagnosis. Like we know that the thoughts are so powerful um, and the power to, to manage our thoughts should be, you know, I used to think uh, early on when I really got into natural health, like I went through these phases of like, oh, it's all body. It's all the body. It's exercise. It's diet. It's nutrition. It's supplements. It's all the physical and, and a little bit of mental, emotional, spiritual. And then I dive deep into, you know, meditation and chanting with Hare Krishnas and sound healing and doing, um, you know, Ayurvedic um, practices and, and uh, doing all kinds of ceremonies with Native Americans and sweat lodges and uh, meditating with master Buddhist monks for hours and hours and hours and hours. And then I go, oh, it's all mine. Everything's mine. Nothing matters with the body. It doesn't, you know, it's like you don't even need the body. It's all mind and emotion and spirit. And I went through these phases like multiple times and then eventually came to this place of like, all of it's important, all of it, right? The supplements, the diet, the nutrition, the exercise, the the mental, emotional, all of it's important. But I, I am still at this place now where like, to me, the mind, the mental, emotional, and spiritual realms of our lives, mm-hmm. if we put 70 or, or 80% focus there, we're going to have way greater success with our health. Yeah. Physical, 20 or 30%, you know, we're going to have great success uh, with the physical. But the opposite, if you put all your attention on the physical and nothing on the mental, emotional, spiritual, we see, we see people often don't get better that way. They do all the supplements, all the diet, all the exercise, all the sauna, all that stuff, but they have this deeper underlying trauma that's yes. continuously leading to stress, that's continuously causing chronic inflammation in the body, that's contributing to the disease, and all this other stuff. It's helping, but I don't think it can or will help as much as if we really go deep into the, into the mind and the emotions and spirit. What are your thoughts on that? I could not agree more. Um, it's interesting because I interviewed Jeffrey Reidinger, who wrote Cured, and he, he's an Ivy League grad who talked about, you probably have seen his work, um, and he started, he was a very, you know, kind of a skeptic analytic and said, well, I'm going to try to look at this stuff. And what he found is there was, all, this was all cancer patients mostly, but there was a few autoimmune and other things, and they had all different diets and they had all different backgrounds. And so there wasn't like one size fits all for diet or exercise and nutrition. And some of them didn't have the best diets, but they all had this thing that we see in the blue zones, which is Dan Buettner's work. And it's purpose and meaning that's greater than themselves. Like they have some bigger purpose, meaning again, I feel like that's spiritual, but it could be on any wavelength for you listening. If it, you know, fits into your uh, mindset, but something greater purpose, community and connection. All of them had this connection to community, to friends, to family, to true relationships that allowed us to actually feel connected as human beings. 
And most of them ate uh, uh, plants as part of their, but they had all different varieties. You know, they had, some of them did eat meat. Some of them ate more carbs. Some of them ate more. And some of them, these uh, places where the blue zones where the, the large amount of people who live over the age of a hundred, some of them, their primary thing was like tubers or soy or things that we would traditionally maybe say aren't the, the primary thing, but it didn't matter because their connections, their higher purpose and meaning, those things were really, really shifted. And yeah. I would say the same thing as you years ago, it was all about what do I do with functional medicine? What do I do with nutrition? How do I heal the body? How do I heal the gut? I became a gut expert after I had Crohn's disease. And that's all important. But this other level, relationships, trauma, addiction, everything we just talked about, this level is where the power is. And so I agree with you. I would say like 80, 20 or 75, 25, somewhere in that range, the mind, the body, the spirit, I think has more power than just the physical, but you can't ignore the physical. Exactly. That's the, that's the problem is if we ignore one or the other, like percentages are just whatever. Right. But like right. It, if we think if we only focus on one area and, and never focus on the rest, you know, eat a diet, like I see people today and it's actually, it's, it's a major disservice to, to the young people today where you see these so-called health guru influencers who are jacked with, you know, six pack abs and they're, you know, in their thirties or forties and they're on YouTube with millions of followers and saying, Oh yeah, you want to be healthy like me. You can eat whatever you want. I eat Snickers and yeah. candy bars and eat ice cream and that. It's like, you know, it, it's like, yeah, you can look that way because you're managing your macros and you're working out. That doesn't mean you're healthy. Right. Anyone right. can look a certain right. way right. on the outside. It does. It has nothing to do with health. You know, you have to check all, you know, if you want to see yeah. if you're truly healthy, right. <laughs> check all your inflammatory markers and check your right. um, insulin and check, you know, your CRP and check all these other areas, because I guarantee you, you keep eating that way for a long period of time you know, you are creating an environment for disease to show up in the body, but they're just, you know, people get focused on the looks and go, Oh, they look amazing. They look great. I want a body like that. And it's like, well, yeah, you can get a body like that with some basic um, yeah. fundamentals of understanding, but are you actually healthy? Are you actually happy? Do you feel good about yourself? Do you wake up happy every day? You know, are you doing what you love in life? Do you have a purpose and meaning in your life? I think that's the biggest thing, at least in my life and what I, I, I feel is so important for people today is to find a sense of purpose, yeah. you know, and that doesn't have to be saving the world or some huge thing, but find a sense of purpose, do something that gives you meaning and purpose. If it's volunteering, mm -hmm. if it's, you know, contributing to, to the well-being of animals or the planet, or, you know, doing something in your neighborhood, find something that you look forward to doing every day, whether you get paid for it or not. Because that sense of meaning and purpose will drive you forward through the really hard times and contributes to a mindset where you feel good about yourself, right? And when you feel good about yourself, you are releasing neurochemicals that are leading to health and healing in the body. Yeah, I love this concept. One whole chapter is called Supercharged Healing Through Flow. So if you've ever read uh, Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi or Stephen Kotler's work on flow, 
This is one of my favorite things in the world. And flow is just this optimal state of neurotransmitters. <clears throat> so you have high dopamine, serotonin, and anandamides, and uh, oxytocin, and kind of the perfect storm. And it's those times when if you're a musician, you're like lost in playing music, and all of a sudden, three or four hours of class have passed. Or if you're like a rock climber, or a skier, or a, a surfer, you can be an athlete. And all of a sudden, you're not even thinking about the movements of your body. They're just coming naturally, and you're doing kind of superhuman events and feats, because you're so in that flow, your body just knows what to do next. And there's not a lot of thought cogn cognitively. And literally this place is where our prefrontal cortex actually shuts down. Because as we talked about earlier, our prefrontal cortex is actually what judges and says, oh, we should or shouldn't or stop or go or don't do that or don't do it like that. It's that, that judge in our head. When we can get that prefrontal cortex to tone down, we can just experience life in the present moment. And it's I, I'm thinking about this because you started with purpose and meaning. We were both talking about that. And the ways you get into flow are find something that gives you great purpose and meaning dedicate some time to it without distractions turn off your internet turn off the alerts on your phone be present um, and then make the challenge level you want it to be challenging enough so that it keeps your attention but not too challenging that you quit or not enough challenging that you're bored there's so this is perfect challenge level and usually it's something kind of new maybe you're learning a new skill set and like i said it could be art it could be writing it could be creativity it could be music it could be listening or playing music it could be a sports thing and for me i feel like flow can optimize our human performance and also our health because Number one, if I'm in my clinic with patients, I have collective flow when I'm sitting there completely present with them, listening to them. I get ideas and plans and ways to help them heal that I would have never had had I not been completely engaged and engrossed and present with them because I'm literally feeling them and listening to them and asking the questions and ideas and things to help them heal come from, I don't even know where, but I know I'm in flow because it's these things that I would have never necessarily thought of had I not been completely present. And the other thing is if we can harness this in our life, so finding meaning or purpose, things that give us joy and do more of that and get into flow states, I a hundred percent believe this helps our physical health as well as our mental health. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, I mean, like I said, it's, um, it's being proven more and more through science today, uh, exactly that and, and how it works and why it does. But uh, what are some of your favorite things to do that like get you into that flow state? What are some things that you do personally that just bring you so much joy and, and, and happiness yeah. in doing them? Well, I've got two sides of me. I like this harness, this little girl, I color and I play and I dance and I listen to music and I go hiking. That's that side. And then I have this like dopamine junkie and I have a motorcycle that I love to ride and I love <laughs> to ride. People are surprised about that. I, I've been rock climbing before and had some pretty great experiences rock climbing. I love to snow ski and go pretty extreme on that. So those are kind of my more uh, dopamine adrenaline junkie adventures. Um, but really, it's interesting because I tend to find that uh, time in nature is probably my biggest inducer. And it could be many different scenes, but scenes that just are magical and beautiful. And I can be with friends. I love that. But I actually love that alone time. Sometimes my greatest creative thoughts come when I'm walking. It's funny because the book... I had always known in my heart when I was going to write, I like to write, I can write on the screen, no problem. But I felt like there's going to be an easier way to get this message out. And I would probably half of my content, I would hike and I would dictate the stories and I would literally just talk through them. And there's something about the way speaking came out more authentic. It's not always that way for everyone, but for me, and then I would dictate and write it and edit it. But about half of the writing I did in the book came from walking in nature and dictating stories into my microphone and my, in my phone and recording. Yeah, that's super smart. Um, Cause when you're out in nature and you're kind of like just, you know, walking, enjoying the beauty, like you get, you can get some really deep insights, right? Um, yeah. 
in the shower too. The shower's yes. one place that's pretty, you know, I don't get them in the shower anymore because I take cold showers. So it's like, oh, yeah, you're like, oh. you know, I, Nathan, why that is, I want to, that's a prefrontal thing. So when we have someone that like we garden, maybe we'd love to garden, we're just out there gardening showers like this. What happens is in those places, we have enough of a routine that we can let go of a plan or whatever. And we actually shut down. So it's actually a way to kind of get into flow creativity, creatively, because our, our prefrontal cortex will shut down. It's just amazing to me how that, yeah. like, I love the brain part of it because in the shower or doing something that doesn't take a lot of, like maybe we shoot baskets um, and we're just like not really paying attention. We don't need a lot of thought into it or gardening or coloring. And then all of a sudden we get these creative ideas because that prefrontal judge has been told, you know, to shut down. And I just find it fascinating because that judge, we all know. When I talk about that, you listening, you guys know what that is when you're like, told, oh, that's stupid. Oh, you shouldn't do it this way or whatever. Well, if we can get that to shut down, that's where the brilliance comes in. Well, and that proves that we are not only about survival of the fittest, as so many people have thought since Darwinian theory for so long, right? Because if it was only survival of the fittest, we wouldn't have these designs in our brain that literally not only allow us, but are are designed for us to enter into these higher states of consciousness where we get completely out of anything related to survival or fear or flight or any of these things. And we have these, these profound insights and these joyful thoughts and these visions and these ideas and these, right. Everything we see today came from a, came from a thought. It came from a vision, whether it's this microphone or it's, you know, electricity and a light bulb or anything. And I remember, you know, a, a really early spiritual teacher of mine teaching me this when I was like, 17 and you know helping me realize that every single thing uh started with a thought and that thought eventually manifested into something physical well we uh we're designed to enter into that flow state you know Mm -hmm. we're designed to experience that joy like you said you're gardening and all of a sudden you just start having you know or painting and you're painting and all of a sudden you paint some kind of masterpiece that you just had you know no idea that you could do such a thing or whether you're exercising and or playing basketball or something right and you get into these states of just like wow i just, I just felt so amazing for the past 2 hours um so it just that right there if anybody needs proof that we're way beyond just a survival species right we're just here to survive no we're here to thrive we're here to thrive and in, to enjoy life and to find the things in life that bring us joy and to your story you know i think that's so incredible what you've done in your own life is you have you know through challenge through hardship through cancer through crohn's disease through all these challenges as you have come out of that and will come through it and beyond it and discovered the things in your life that truly bring you joy and share that with other people which helps other people and bring i'm sure brings you joy when you know that you're helping other people yeah, there's probably no greater joy. I always said if even just one person reads it and, and their life has changed or transformed, I'll have done my job. And granted, I hope certainly hope more than one gets changed, but it's really that idea that really transformation is possible and that we all, so I always say it's it's my story, but it's really the secret is everybody has a story and it's not really about me. My hope is that someone will read it and see themselves reflected in the journey and then have ideas on how they can feel that same empowerment and a resilience. And like you said, at the bottom at the, at the core, the joy that we can get through life, even in the midst of suffering. Yeah, absolutely. I wanted to ask you about, so when you, 
Um, when you had your cancer diagnosis and then you were doing chemotherapy, did you do surgery also? Is it surgery and radiation or just chemotherapy? All of it. All of it. Multiple you did all of it. Yeah, yeah. That's what I thought. And multiple surgeries. Yeah. So how long was that process for you? And, and you said you were doing a lot of natural therapies during also, or just after? Uh, during, uh, to the, uh, miss not advice of my oncologist. I went and gave <laughs> conventional wisdom. It's funny. Cause I, I have to be careful. Cause I'm like, say, I don't want to tell you to disobey your doctor, but I did. <laughs> I like <laughs> but disobey your doctor. If you, if you, feel but, like uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, yeah, I did. I mean, cause I talk about no antioxidants during chemo and I was like, screw that. I'm going to do right. vitamin C. I'm sorry, but a CoQ10, there's a, now even now I'll, I'll consult patients and I'll work with their oncologist. I never, I never claim to treat cancer. I'm not an oncologist, but like, you know, this so well, there's such a, co- a, a collaboration and uh, so many patients get stuck feeling like they have to choose sides or be stuck in the middle of these things. And you don't, you can actually, I really designed my own therapy. That's what it came down to. I ended up, um, I had the biopsy and then I had to have another surgery to get the, all the margins and everything. So it was a lumpectomy and with lumpectomy at that time, it was considered you needed to get radiation. Well, I looked in the data on the radiation and there was no survival benefit. Surprise, surprise. It's like, why would I do this external beam radiation that's on my left side to hit my heart and maybe damage my heart after chemo that could damage my heart if there's no survival benefit? So it was slight decreased risk of recurrence, but no survival benefit. I was like, not going to do it. But what I ended up doing is seeking out this guy who was doing experimental, Dr. Kusky, who's doing experimental thing called brachytherapy. So we we drove up to Wisconsin, which was a couple hours away from Chicago. And he literally put tubes in the breast after another surgery. And then he put iridium beads right into the center of where the tumor was. So I only got radiation kind of from the inside out. There's something now that's really common at that time. This was called brachytherapy or now there's a mammocyte. It's much, much more common at that time. It was completely experimental. And I, I, I begged him because he had a study of like 55 to 65 year old women who were very low risk. And here I come in, that's like, I'm almost guaranteed to not survive. And I would totally mess up his study, but we begged and pleaded. And he said, okay, I'll do that. That was actually my first um, experience with a doc where I was like, I want to be like him. Like he went way outside the lines, way outside the box of what should have been conventional to treat me um, just because, you know, I felt like it would save my life. And I feel like it did. So I had radiation and then I had six rounds of incredibly aggressive, toxic, um, 5-FU, cytoxin, and doxyrubicin. And that doxyrubicin, massively cardiotoxic. The cytoxin I later found, literally one of the mechanisms of action is to induce leaky gut. And so it's no surprise then with this genetic predisposition towards Crohn's and uh, this gut, this uh, drug that caused leaky gut six months after I completely finished all the therapy, um, I was diagnosed with Crohn's disease. Wow. Wow. And was that, now that was probably very painful then at that time. Yeah. It's funny. Cause that was in my, I was kind of living in the neck up and I was denying all my body and I got through all the radiation chemo. I was so sick, went right back to rotations. Again, I grew up in this kind of German stoic, pull it by the bootstraps, don't complain family. So all I knew was just to push and go and drive and ignore my body and medical school just reinforce that. Like I said, it was brutal. You were like taught to not sleep, to not eat, to not pee, to like not have physical needs. And again, that's so unhealthy for any of us, let alone a, a doctor who's supposed to have compassion So we had to relearn all that stuff. But because of that, I went right back to rotations. I should have probably taken a lot more time off. This whole cycle of all that treatment that I just described was nine months. And I went right back into rotations. So it wasn't long at all. I was bald. I was sick. I was running fevers. I never told anyone. 
like unless you were dead or in the ICU, you had to report to work as a resident. There was no allowance for being ill. And That's so crazy. I think, yeah, it, it's really crazy because how can you have a compassionate physician when you are denying your own needs, suppressing your own illness, like not even acknowledging, like that does not create compassion and empathy. And thank goodness, I always feel like I, I clung to a shard of compassion and empathy and I never lost it. But so many doctors do and they get out and they're kind of jaded and they're sarcastic and they're like, you know, uh, because of the education. So I was running fevers, doing my rotations, not telling anyone. I was very malnourished, very sick, loose stools, bloody um, diarrhea, just a horrible pain in my belly. And one night I'm in the ER taking a patient's blood pressure and I pass out cold and I end up in emergency surgery for an abscess. I wake up the next morning and the surgeon came into my room and he said, Jill, you've got Crohn's disease. Um, and I ended up the next couple of days seeing a gastroenterologist and he was like, this is incurable. You're going to have it lifelong. You're going to need immune modulating drugs. You probably need steroids right now. It's likely you're going to have part of your colon removed over your lifetime. And he was just, you know, no, uh, no hope at all. And the last thing I said, you'll get a kick out of this because right before I left, I said, and I was very sincere. I wanted to do whatever was in my power. And I said, doc, you know, does diet have anything to do with this? Is there anything I can do with my diet? He did not pause. He just said, Jill, diet has nothing to do with this. But that was where I went from my head to my heart because my body and my heart knew this, that can't be right. I mean, I was just a lowly third-year medical student and I didn't have a lot of nutrition background, but my heart and my intuition said, there's no way that diet has nothing to do with Crohn's and I'm going to prove him wrong. And this is where that stubborn DNA came in. And I went and I searched and looked for answers and I came across Elaine Gottschall's specific carbohydrate diet. And I was willing to make a change and I did. And I wasn't cured within two weeks, but within two weeks of changing my diet, my fevers were gone. My abdominal pain was gone. I felt like a new person. And I knew at that moment, diet absolutely has everything to do with autoimmunity in general, but especially with Crohn's and colitis. Wow. That's, I mean, such an incredible story. I mean, the fact that you've made it through all of that and, and where you are now, uh, obviously very healthy. And I want to talk some more of that. I'd love for you to share a little bit more of the timeline and some of the other things that you've done along the way to heal yourself and thrive. Um, but what you said is so common and it's sad that it's so common. I talk to cancer patients all the time who, you know, if they ask their oncologist, say, Hey, does diet have anything to do with cancer? And the, the immediate answer is no, diet has nothing to do with cancer. If it did, everybody would just change their diet. It would be so easy. <laughs> I'm like, oh my God. It's, like, yeah, right? it's, it's such, um, it's so sad that our medical doctors who are supposed to be, you know, considered the smartest people on the planet, they're not taught any of this in medical school. And it's, it's sad because they could be brilliant, so brilliant in helping their patients if they actually knew the causes of autoimmune disease, the causes of cancer, the causes of diabetes, the cause of heart disease. If they actually knew the causes, like we know, it's there, it's in the literature, it's clear, right? Mm -hmm. Diet is a big part of it. Stress yeah. is a big part yes. of it. You know, uh, toxicity is a big part of it. Um, disconnection and relationships, disconnection from a, uh, a sense of purpose in life. We know all of these things contribute um, and can be, you know, very correlative and in many cases, very causative. If they were taught this in medical school, they could save so many people's lives. But, you know, the ignorance is just, nope, has nothing to do with it. You know, follow this plan or you're going to die. And that's what people are told every day. And out of fear, they do it. And, you know, 
it's it's just sad. It's sad because you know we know that the pharmaceutical companies have a stranglehold yes. on the information that the medical students receive in school. You know because they fund the information that goes in the textbooks. They fund the medical schools. They fund everything about our so-called healthcare today, which is really sick care. It's not healthcare. Right. As you said, these doctors are not trained on health and how to be healthy for themselves. They're put through so much stress and lack of sleep and poor diet and, you know, all these things just through medical school and then in internship and then in, you know, actually becoming a doctor and, and, you know, working late through the nights, all these kinds right. of things that are not about supporting health at all. And, and I mean, you know, doctors are amazing. Don't get me wrong. Right. And you said the same thing, like they're doing incredible things for people saving lives, uh, especially when it comes to, you know, acute trauma situations, but when it comes to chronic disease, right. um, prevention and reversal, unfortunately our medical doctors and conventional medicine today have no idea what to do about it other than drugs, radiation and yeah. surgery. Um, and these are not great tools for chronic disease. They're just not. And the evidence is proving that to be true. So true. Um, I talk about incurable doesn't mean there's not a cure. It means that there's no drug to treat that condition. And that's like the right. start statement in my book. And it's so powerful. People are always like, oh, wow. Yeah, that's true. Right. Because it, you're right. It's very pharmaceutical dri driven. And just like now with functional medicine, my toolbox isn't just drugs and surgery, which play a role. There's a place for those. It's much, much bigger. It's his mind, it's body, it's spirit, it's environmental toxic load, it's decreased infectious burden, and it's deal with these things through diet, lifestyle, mindset, nutrition, and all the tools we have. And then all of these other biohacking things you and I talked about, you know, even light therapy and sound therapy, and there's so, so many options. And each of these things has an impact on our physiology. And a lot of these things can actually reverse, like I talk about reversible autoimmunity now, that's like not considered true in traditional medical school, but I see it over and over and over again. So what, what are all the things that you changed um, in, in your diet? Uh, let's start with diet. Uh, once you had the Crohn's diagnosis, you said you went to the specific carbohydrate diet. What were other things? And then within two weeks, you saw incredible results, incredible benefit. Um, and then, you know, are you today have zero Crohn's um, flare ups, <laughs> symptoms? Crohn's completely gone. zero. Yep. 100% gone. 100% gone. So, that's it. So, so the incurable thing has right. obviously. Right, right. Yeah, has obviously so been cured. So I'm going to go back on the farm because I grew up kind of steak and potatoes and lots of fruits and vegetables. It wasn't a bad lifestyle, but looking back about age 14, I became a vegetarian. And again, nothing wrong with that, but I look back in the why and the why was I didn't know it, but I had low stomach acid. So meat was hard to digest and I wasn't treating it because of that low stomach acid. I had a very severe B12 and zinc deficiency. So all those things combined to make me not enjoy the feeling of having meat in my belly because I couldn't digest it. Right. And when you have a zinc deficiency, you'll actually have, you'll kind of abhor or not like the taste of meat. That's actually pathognomonic for zinc deficiency. So it's no wonder that I basically went, I tried to do vegetarian, but at 14, I didn't know what I was doing. And there was no precedent in my family for vegetarians because we grew up on a farm and it was steak and potatoes kind of the life. So everything was crazy. And I did the best I could. But what I ended up doing is I gravitated towards a carbitarian. And we talk about cancer and sugar and you know the story there. And so I was eating way too many carbs. And I also, I didn't know, number one, I had the genetics for Crohn's. This NOD2 gene, what it does is it takes um, the normal bacteria in your gut, if you have permeability, those bacterial coatings can leak into the bloodstream and create this lipopolysaccharide, that's the coating, 
endotoxemia, big word, but all it means is that those coatings of the bacteria in the blood create one of the most inflammatory responses in the body. This has been linked to heart disease, obesity, diabetes, insomnia, low testosterone in men, mood disorders, and I could name 20 other things. It's really, really common as an underlying metabolic inflammatory trigger. We even saw in COVID people had worse outcomes when they had metabolic endotoxemia. So unbeknownst to me, I had this abnormally uh, aggressive response to those normal bacteria that go back and forth between the gut and the bloodstream. And that can lead to damage of the intestinal lining, which ends up being Crohn's. And then the second thing I had that I didn't know is I had a high risk gene for celiac. And as 14 year old, what I ate, I ate a lot of carbs and I ate a lot of gluten, didn't know any better, right? So from 14 to 25, um, before I was diagnosed with cancer, a little over 10 years, I was going downhill with my diet thinking I was being really healthy. Um, and it's funny because I remember I talk about in the book, it like, you know, maybe 14 to 16, I felt puffy. I felt I was never overweight. I was always a healthy, normal weight, but because I was eating gluten and the wrong foods, my belly was puffy, my skin, my face looked more puffy. And I thought I was fat. Like I had issues, you know, around that too. And looking back, it was all inflammation. And I think of these young girls that are maybe thinking they're not healthy and it's really the kinds of things they're eating. So when I hit 25 and I got cancer and I got Crohn's, I started looking at diet and I realized, oh, this vegetarian diet for me and my genetics and how I was doing it was almost killing me. So I shifted. The first thing I shifted to was a um, specific carbohydrate diet. And the reason that works, it was Elaine Gottschall that first found her daughter had colitis and she found a pediatrician who had been doing this diet for um, inflammatory bowel and IBS. And she said, why not try it for my daughter? Well, she healed her daughter from colitis through this diet. And this diet takes out these disaccharides, like two sugars combined or monosaccharides that are the fuel for small intestinal bacterial overgrowth and small intestinal fungal overgrowth. Now, here's the thing I learned that's so important about Crohn's that many doctors, many patients don't know. The antibodies we check to see severity of Crohn's in a traditional lab are anti-yeast, anti-carbohydrate antibodies. So what we know is yeast and bacteria in the small bowel are huge triggers for Crohn's and colitis and IBS. It's probably 80% of the cases. So what I did was I changed my microbiome. I took out all the sugar, all the carbs. I went gluten-free. And initially I did specific carbohydrate diet, which I still believe is probably the best starting point for Crohn's or colitis or inflammatory bowel. Since then, what I've been on is more of a paleo. I'm grain-free. I'm completely processed, refined, sugar-free, no gluten, no dairy, no egg, no soy, no corn, no sugar, no alcohol. And literally for 21 years, I've been completely, um, I don't feel it restrictive because I feel so well when I eat well. Um, but I've been off of those foods for these last two decades and completely. Yeah. But what I did is I did multiple tests, organic acids, stool tests. I looked at the microbiome. I shifted that bit by bit. And we think probiotics are helpful. They are. But diet is what changes the microbiome. And diversity is king. So having multiple strains and species and things that are diverse, I always compare it to back in um Ireland, when there was a potato famine, all the farmers were like, oh, this is a great type of potato seed. And they all grew the same crop. And then there was this blight that knocked out all of the potatoes because it was all the same type of potato. It's the same thing with your gut microbiome. If you don't have diversity, you don't have resilience. So what I've done over the past 20 years is restore my microbiome, increase diversity, spore probiotics, immunoglobulins, butyric acid or short chain fatty acids and eating. I have a, it's funny because when I say paleo, people think I eat all meat. I actually eat very little meat. I eat chicken and fish. I don't eat red meat. I eat tons of plants, nuts and seeds, healthy oils like olive oil. I don't eat any processed oils or no processed foods. And it's completely transformed my body and my microbiome. And I think that actually helped not only the Crohn's be completely cured, but I think that's kept me from uh, cancer as well. 
Yeah, that's amazing. You know, sometimes that's all it is. Sometimes there's just one culprit in someone's diet. Let's say someone's on whatever, whether it's vegetarian, vegan, or paleo, or whatever diet they're on, and they're having all kinds of gut issues and health issues. Sometimes, literally, it's one culprit. It's corn, right? Yeah. And like corn's in everything. Right. So you right. try to avoid it. Like if you like, so I realized like corn was, my body was not happy with corn. And so once I cut it out, like I like you have to be so diligent with that one thing because we went gluten free years ago. Just the research I did on on gluten and especially how the wheat is completely changed today from what it was a hundred years ago, and you know so on and so forth. Even organic wheat today here in the U.S. is not the wheat that you know our ancestors were eating. It is so different, so modified, so changed. You know, it's protein. Um, uh, the protein of the gluten in the wheat today is like totally different than it used to be. I think that's part of the problem with, uh, with gluten in people's diets today, but all right. So you go gluten-free. All right. Well, everything now to 10 years ago, it was harder to like get gluten-free stuff today. Everything's gluten-free, but what do they replace gluten-free with? They replace it with corn, cornstarch and cornmeal. Right. So let's say you have issues, but you go gluten free, but you're still having stomach issues. You're still having digestive issues. You're still having inflammation, whatever. And you don't know what it is. It could just be the corn, for example. It could just be one thing. But if you can get those culprits out of your diet and then do like you said, eat way cleaner, obviously organic. You know, I'm a huge proponent of organic uh, as much as you possibly can. You know, you grew up on a farm with pesticides and, you know, you feel that that contributed to your cancer diagnosis. We know pesticides uh, can lead to cancer. So that's a pretty easy, you know, a, a theory or assumption to make. But um, eating lots of vegetables, right? The vegetables are, are the part that um, I think most people are missing in their diet today that have the anti-cancer properties, the polyphenols, the antioxidants, right? The, the neuroprotective properties, the heart disease protective properties, you know, the dark leafy green vegetables, the cruciferous vegetables, your broccolis and bok choys, you know, um, you know, these are, these are the vegetables we need to have in our diet every single day and, you know, spinach and celery and lettuce. People, people just throw lettuce out like, oh, there's nothing that great about lettuce. Lettuce is a superfood. Lettuce has some of the best. (laughs) Yeah. Right. And it's like, you make a simple salad dressing at home and eat it up or put it in a blender and drink it. If you, you know, if you don't like eating salads, but getting those, you know, one thing I've been doing lately is just getting the raw broccoli, the small broccoli heads and just dipping it in an organic hummus and eating it like that. It's so good. And you're getting the fiber. It's the diversity of the microflora, right? People think, Oh, I've got, I need probiotics. My bacteria is out of whack. You know, they said, I've got some gut issues, so I'm going to buy probiotics. And what do they get? They get a probiotic that's lactobacillus bacillus, and it's like 10 billion, you know, one strain. And that's all they do is take one strain of a probiotic or eight strains of a probiotic and think, I'm fixing my microflora in my gut. You're not fixing it with a single strain of probiotic. You simply are not. You need hundreds and hundreds of different kinds of strains Right. And you only get that, as you said, from eating a wide variety of whole foods, of real foods, nuts and seeds and being, you know, legumes and vegetables and fruits and berries. Right. And that's what creates that that diversity for for the microflora. So that's exactly right. And I love that you said that. I want to emphasize that because people think getting even like a hundred billion strain of probiotic, you could actually be doing the opposite and creating monoculture if you have eight strains and you're taking these. Exactly. 
which means you're actually decreasing diversity. The only way we get diversity is through food and through plant fibers and these things. So I love that you said that because probiotics are great. They have a place and there's good data on some of them. And I'm actually getting more and more a fan of spores. There's many companies, many kinds out there, but the spores are the only ones that have data to actually induce some of these species that are keystone strains like Acromancia or Picobacterium Przmitsky. These are keystone strains that indicate diversity. And there's no evidence that Lactobacillus and Bifidobacter increase diversity. Spores do, but food is where it's at. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Food is where it's at. And like I said, too, you know, there's nothing wrong with taking a probiotic, but if you're overdoing one strain and then you're not adding in diversity in your food, you know, that's where people get out of balance. And, you know, I really like fermented food, Um, you know, kimchi, even just like a little bit uh, each day, like a little bit of sauerkraut, a little bit of kimchi, um, you know, some, uh, um, Let's see what oh kombucha. Do a little bit of kombucha. I know kombucha usually is pretty high in sugar, so uh, you know you might not want to drink a lot of it, but a little bit. I actually get a there's a shot you can get. It's just like it's a bottle, but you just take like a swig of it. Um, that's like a kefir, um, like a kefir probiotic drink that's very low in sugar, but it still tastes really good. And just take a swig of that, like some kind of. Um, you know, I think kimchi is probably the best or sauerkraut because you're getting the, the good bacteria in the fermented vegetables at the same time. So you have the food for the bacteria, which the food is the fiber, right? Like they eat the fiber. Our bodies don't eat the fiber. People don't know, right? The fiber in the vegetables and plants that we eat is for the bacteria. That's their food source. Um, and so that's why we need it. And so if you're eating potato chips and, you know, pasta all day long, you're not getting or pizza, you're not giving the food that your bacteria need to survive. Like they're not getting enough food. And then things get out of whack, whack, and then you end up with a, you know, Crohn's disease diagnosis or a cancer diagnosis. And these things are primarily preventable, aren't they? Yeah, preventable and reversible. And, you know, um, I've said a lot of times autoimmune disease starts in the gut because we have this genetic predisposition we can't change. We have environmental triggers like gluten or chemicals or toxins, and we have the gut immune interface. That's where we have the most control. I could do a whole two-hour lecture on that, but that gut immune interface uh, results in health based on our foods that we eat, decreased toxic load, and all the things we've been talking about. Um, And it's funny, though, even more than that, I've been, you mentioned gluten and wheat in the U.S., I feel like our soils are actually reflecting our microbiomes. And so lately I've been talking about even going further than just the gut because our gut is reflected by the health of our soils and our soils are also becoming depleted and they're becoming more heavily used with glyphosate or other chemicals, which destroys the healthy microbiome of the soil. And we're starting to see that reflected in our guts. So it's kind of a big deal. And now again, with glyphosate, yeah. the traces on things like organic wines in California. So like, you can't get away from this, but you need to still try to do the best you can with organic and keeping out those chemicals because they absolutely affect our gut and predispose us to autoimmune disease. Yeah. I think, I think the, the only real long-term solution is to get back to growing Mm-hmm. as much of our own food as we can in small communities, yeah. you know, um, if, you know, like I live in a neighborhood here, like, you know, starting a little community garden, we have like a little small garden in the backyard right now. We want to have a permaculture food forest, you know, when we get more land, that's, that's the vision. Um, but I think, you know, like the victory gardens we had after world war II, yeah. you know, where 50% of the entire country grew their own food in, you know, 50% of the food source was grown basically by families in backyards. 
You know, like that's the way that we take control of our food sovereignty and our health through, you know, diet and nutrition is by having, you know, having our own food. And then we know what goes in it and we know how to take care of it. And if you choose to spray chemicals on it, well, then that's your own fault, you know, (laughs) but at least, you know, if, if you're growing it, um, and you're, you know, we have a garden tower in the backyard, which is fantastic. Like, so instead of having eight, eight foot garden beds that take up quite a bit of space, you can have 50 plants in this single, you know, Amazing. single tower yeah. and it's got food composting in it and awesome. we put the worms in it. We put our compost in there. And so, you know, all of that, it makes compost tea, all the nutrients. Wow. So we pour that on the plants and then, you know, the worms are constantly, you know, aerating the soil and pooping in there and creating you know, good nitrogen and good health for the plants. So like when I go out there and cut some fresh greens and put in my smoothies in the mornings, I know I'm getting the healthiest, the most nutrient dense vegetables that I can into my body when they're coming from that. I know they're way healthier and more nutrient dense than what's coming from the grocery store. Um, And so, no, we can't survive on that one thing, but you can do more. And we can all do our part. Even for me, I have a condo with a balcony, but I grow the herbs on my balcony, everything I can in those boxes out there. And so many of us are used to, even I'm guilty of this too. I want my blueberries and strawberries all year round. Well, they don't, they don't grow in my culture in Colorado all year. Right. So I know, because I love these things, but you even, even that, if you can eat in season, eat locally, grow whatever you can, even if it's just starting with herbs. And nowadays, whether you're condo apartment, you can get these hydroponic, uh, you know, gardens and you can do things that we never used to be able to do. Yeah, exactly. Well, Jill, it was really great getting to know you and more about your story. And, um, you know, you're, uh, you're amazing. I mean, just what you've gone through and where you've come from and the, the, the joy and the light and the, you know, wisdom that you radiate. Uh, I'm sure your patients are very lucky, uh, when they get to work with you. And um, I appreciate you taking the time to come on the podcast. So thank you so much. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. And where can, uh, where's the best place for people to get a copy of your book? Um, Unexpected, highly recommend it. As I said, it's fantastic. I love how you've just written it, like a lot of uh, storytelling in here. I I really think um, it's a fantastic book. I encourage everyone to read it. Where can they get a copy of it? Thank you so much, Nathan. Uh, Readunexpected.com is where you get all kinds of free bonuses, but you can get it Amazon, Barnes and Noble, anywhere you buy books, go to your favorite. And if you can support local or smaller retailers, please do so. Get it anywhere you want. It's on Audible, it's on Kindle, it's on regular hardcover. Um, But do come back to readunexpected.com because I've got a free coloring journal, help you get into flow. I've got a free lecture on mast cell activation, which we didn't even touch on, but is becoming more of an issue for more people. And I've got a free chapter that's recorded that isn't included in the book. And that was readunexpected.com? Exactly. Cool. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Appreciate it. You're welcome. All right. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Nathan Crane Podcast. Please make sure to subscribe and share this on social media. Then head over to NathanCrane.com for your free ebook. So when we're talking about, you know, what are these underlying causes and conditions of these chronic diseases, cancer, diabetes, heart disease, they all have very similar, if not identical causes. And that's the thing is when we get to the root cause of these diseases, we can not only prevent these diseases from ever happening, but empower our bodies to 
heal from them. In every one of our cells, we have tens and hundreds of thousands of chemical reactions that are happening every second that are cycling uh, back and forth. It's like sort of a, a yin and yang. And, you know, for me, the soul, soul's purpose is evolution. It doesn't care about comfort. It cares about evolution. Mm. And so I think so long as we are following our soul, then we will evolve. And I think what sometimes blocks us from living our purpose, from manifesting that next level of our expression, is we have not evolved. There is also a time for letting go all the expectations and relax and just breathe and be grateful for what you have achieved.